Welcome, listeners. This is the continuation of Lost Episodes Can Be Found Again by Hopeless Night Owl. I won't keep you waiting. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something different. Despite this experience, I decided to stick my neck out a little more. This was getting serious, and I needed a clear picture of what I was up against. I had an acquaintance in the FBI who owed my family the favor of a lifetime. I convinced him over dinner that I paid for to look into the lost media group for me. A few weeks later, he had a document for me. It was an analyst report containing all the information the FBI had on this mysterious group. The information known by the Bureau about the lost media group is so scant as to strongly suggest that the group does not really exist. This report assumes the existence of the group for investigative purposes. However, most of the information contained herein is more speculation than confirmed fact. Most of the testimony concerning the LMG has been hearsay and off the record. The exact nature, size, organization, origins, and goals of the LMG are mysterious. It is said to be a multinational organization that has embedded in multiple entertainment industries and is most active in cities with large concentrations of entertainment companies, such as Los Angeles, New York City, Atlanta, Toronto, and Tokyo. Membership is by invitation only, and is rumored to include a number of wealthy entertainment executives and financiers. Second-hand informants report that the group uses a variety of criminal tactics, including bribery, blackmail, and violence, to prevent the dissemination of information concerning them. It is speculated that the LMG uses other crime syndicates as proxies for their operations in order to obfuscate investigations into their activities, and that they mislead people into believing they are more powerful than they really are. Claims that the group possesses supernatural powers are likely the result of selective disinformation campaigns. The Lost Media Group first came to the Bureau's attention during the 1970s, but is said to date back to the early 1900s. During the 1920s and 1930s, an urban legend emerged concerning mystery reels, which were said to be altered versions of syndicated movie theater reels that differed significantly in content and tone from the standard copies. The Bureau believes that the lack of public awareness of entertainment industry standards and copyright contributed to the fact that such works were not reported to the media or law enforcement. A recurring theme in testimony concerning mystery reels is that they often contain violent content that was more extreme than mainstream theater content, and several former members of censorship boards have claimed to have received complaints about them. Witnesses also claim that mystery reels based on live-action films featured different actors, and that these actors in retrospect seem to have been coerced. One witness claimed that an actor in a silent mystery reel appeared to be saying, help me before being silenced by someone off-screen. These claims have led the Bureau to believe that the LMG may have participated in trafficking in human beings. The group is also rumored to have been involved in the production and distribution of snuff films, though there is as little evidence to support this claim as there is to support the very existence of snuff movies. Other crimes the Lost Media Group is suspected to be involved with include media piracy, drugging of actors, trafficking in endangered species for use in films, and recording executions for other criminal organizations. 
I pondered over the report. Membership by invitation only. Well funded. Well connected. Must be well organized. Membership by invitation only. Well funded, well connected, and must be well organized. Yet their activities seemed nothing short of bizarre. Why would a group with this kind of resources this group apparently had, unlike the FBI, I was beginning to take the existence of the Lost Media Group for granted at this point, not spend them on more traditional and profitable criminal activities. Why would that many people commit so many resources and risk so much just to make movies? There was no way such a sophisticated syndicate could make enough money off of simple piracy to be considered profitable. And the other crimes listed in the report would seem beyond the scope of expertise of a cabal ostensibly comprised of people in the entertainment industry. Was it not about money? An ideological or religious motivation? Perhaps? Certainly, it did not fit any religion I could think of. And it didn't seem like they were interested in influencing elections. Their motives must be subtler. They had a message they wanted to send, or an influence they wanted to create. Using the power of mass media and are willing to dabble in any number of crimes towards whatever their ultimate end was. A few weeks later, I received a reply from the former Lost Media Society admin, the one who said to be attempting to collect lost episodes. He told me he was not aware of an Aristocats lost episode version, but that he was nevertheless now in possession of several lost episode copies and was willing to show them to me. For a price. To be exact, he wanted a thousand dollars. I agreed without hesitation. I was not at a point in my life where I could comfortably spend a thousand dollars on anything, let alone a prospect that might not deliver, but I was afraid trying to talk him down to a lower offer would make him break contact, and something in my gut told me that his claims were at least sincere. He gave me the address of a secluded cabin. He said he would rent for this purpose, which was several states away. He said to come alone, and gave me the exact date he expected me there. I was a little put off by his curt tone, but figured he was paranoid of someone stealing his collection, or worse, being hunted down by the people who made the items. I prepared for the trip and left immediately. When I arrived in the state where the cabin was, it was still a couple of days until our meeting date, so I checked into a hotel. I was up late watching TV in my hotel room, with the lights off, when I found the channel playing the Aristocats. It was in the middle of the movie, but I kept watching. I grew nervous. I had already watched the whole movie, and knew there was nothing unwholesome in the standard version, but the setting, alone in the dark, with just the light of the TV, was strongly reminiscent of my traumatic virgin experience with the feature. Soon though, my unease turned to comfort. I realized there was nothing to fear. Sure, at this point I was convinced that somewhere out there existed a violent and twisted version of the Aristocats, one which I had been unfortunate enough to somehow see as a child, but that didn't matter. It couldn't hurt me now. I laughed as I realized I now had the chance to relive the memory without the trauma. So I grabbed a snack and continued watching in the dark, for once able to enjoy the film as it was intended to be enjoyed. I was able to appreciate what a truly great movie it was, how much effort was put into the animation and voices, how great even the music was. The soundtrack was a little distorted though. 
As I turned up the volume to hear it better, I realized it wasn't the TV. The music became faster and more distorted, and the scene began morphing into abstract images. I heard screams from the TV, and disturbing images too brief to make out clearly flashed on the screen. This all ended with the still image of Berlioz, the one I found on the internet with his eyes bloodshot. On the image were two words in red caps. Stop asking. The screen then went to black. I sat in total darkness, my body quaking, tears and snot running down my face, hardly able to catch my breath. I turned on the lights, threw up in the bathroom and switched the channel. All of the stations were playing normal television, which was somewhat comforting, but I still checked out of the hotel and went to a different one. At this point, I considered giving up the hunt. My first goal had been to find out if lost episodes were real, and I had certainly achieved at least that. Whether going further and finding out the exact nature and origin of them was worth it was becoming an increasingly dubious prospect. Whoever was behind them had powers and resources to seriously threaten me and I didn't know if full closure was worth risking my neck any further. In the end, I decided to keep going though. I was close now, and if there was some secret, powerful group behind all these lost episode stories, the world needed to know. Who were they to try to intimidate me into giving up? No, I wouldn't give up the hunt. At that moment, I doubled down in my determination. At the appointed time, I showed up at the cabin. It was night, and the moon flooded the lonely cabin in an eerie glow. There was a vehicle in the driveway, but the lights were out and there were no other signs of occupancy. I timidly went up and knocked on the door. Without turning on any lights, the man greeted me. For his own safety, I will not describe the man, save to say that he appeared middle-aged. So, you were serious about this. Good. Do you have the money? I gave him the suitcase of cash. He turned a lamp on and counted it out, then motioned for me to follow him to another room. He closed the door behind him before turning on the light. The room had a high ceiling and nature paintings on the wall, along with a single shelf of old books that were clearly there for decoration. Centered on one of the walls was a large plasma television. There was a lot of space, but the man himself had only put a couple of chairs and some plastic storage tubs on the floor. So, here's my collection. It ain't very big, but you'll have a hard time finding these items anywhere else. Sorry to have to charge you so much, but you gotta realize I'm taking a huge risk by showing this stuff to a stranger, so you gotta make it worth my while. I trembled with anticipation. At least, I was about to have some real, concrete answers. Like I said in my email, I don't have, nor have I previously heard of an aristocrat's video made by these people, but from how you described it, I completely believe you saw it. It fits right in with the kind of thing they would make. He continued. By they, you mean the Lost Media Group? I interjected. Yeah, they would be behind the thing you saw, along with the Batman Lost episode if it indeed exists. Though I haven't been able to find it myself, but again, wouldn't be surprised. I don't know what, I don't know what their goal is in making these things, but they're interesting as hell, so I collect them. I asked if he could share some of his contacts, but he flatly refused. I only give that information to trusted friends, and even if you were one of them, I would make you pay more than you could afford. Please, don't ask me that again. You're lucky I even agreed to show you my collection. I was a little flustered by his tone, 
so I just nodded. Then we got down to business. He opened up one of the tubs and pulled out a VCR, along with a black VHS tape with a white label that read Pink Panther in black sharpie. He hooked up the VCR, inserted the tape, and played it. It was a lost episode from the Pink Panther cartoon series, which was a show consisting of short sketches about five or six minutes each, with the Pink Panther going on various solo adventures and getting into trouble with other characters and situations, which he manages with his superior mastery of cartoon physics. There is never any dialogue, save for the occasional wordless exclamation or babble nonsense, like in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, and every short has the Pink Panther theme playing throughout. I had watched a little of the show as a kid, but didn't have many memories of it. The episode was called 40 Shades of Pink, which I assumed was a pun on how Ireland is said to have 40 shades of green, since this was a St. Patrick's Day themed episode. It took place in a Greenland that, while not explicitly identified as Ireland, was obviously supposed to be the Emerald Isle, or at least some generic insular Celtic fantasy land. The short involved the Pink Panther trying to steal a pot of gold from a leprechaun, or rather, the reoccurring little man character dressed as one. As the Pink Panther was walking over a rainbow like a bridge, a storm cloud caused it to disappear from under his feet. He fell, and there was a sickening crunch sound. The Pink Panther was shown bleeding out on the ground, bones jutting out. Then he saw the leprechaun's pot and crawled over to it. Despite his injuries, a smile of victory crawled across his face. As he peered down into the pot, the leprechaun appeared from behind and pushed him in, closing a lid over him and then roasting him alive over a fire. The episode ended with the sound of the Pink Panther screaming. Lame, I thought. Someone basically just took the Pink Panther cartoon and gave it the itchy and scratchy treatment. It was somewhat disturbing that whoever did it clearly had access to the original animation resources to make it look exactly like a real episode. But overall, it was underwhelming compared to what I was expecting. The next item was a copy of The Lion King. This time it was a proper factory copy with a retail jacket. The man told me the movie itself was normal, but there was a special animated short at the end of the tape with psychedelic properties. He warned me that the experience would be far more intense than the Pink Panther tape and even asked me if I had any heart conditions. Despite his warnings, I insisted on going through with it. He refused to fast forward to the short, saying he wanted to keep the tapes from warping even though he had the footage digitally archived. After the credits, there were some special features, including some animated shorts I had never seen before. When the title appeared for a short called The Lion, the man paused and asked once again if I was sure I wanted to proceed. I nodded, and he played it. The short featured what was apparently a version of Scar, but the art style was completely different. It was a 2D animation, but somehow much more realistic than Pixar animation. It's hard to explain. It wasn't like CGI realism, but there was so much detail and effort put into the character that it gave the impression of realism while still being paradoxically fantastical. The clip showed Scar walking around a white background before stopping to face the viewer. The camera began slowly zooming in on his face, and his eyes began glowing red. Threatening jungle music began playing. Suddenly, I became very nervous, 
A vicious grimace emerged on Scar's face, the kind of predator makes before striking. His mouth opened wide, showing rows of sharp teeth, and I heard realistic growling sounds, his face wrinkled in a pattern consistent with the face a lion makes before pouncing. My nervousness turned to terror, my gaze was transfixed on the screen, and I couldn't look away. I knew it was only animation, and even if it wasn't, the lion couldn't get to me through the screen. But I was paralyzed, as if facing a real predator. I was in a trance, one that didn't break until Scar jumped, and I screamed for my life. I kept screaming until the man shook me out of it. Sorry about that, he said, but I did warn you. Once I got my bearings back, I asked for the next item. He gave me a puzzled look, as if he expected me to just give up and want to go home after the last tape. But he shrugged and got the next one. It was another home VHS tape labeled Super Bowl 2000. This next one won't do anything to you like the Lion video, but it's disturbing in what it shows. In fact, I'll just tell you what it is. This tape shows a riot that didn't happen. If you didn't know, there was no sports riot at the 2000 Super Bowl, certainly not in the stadium itself, but the tape shows just that. Once again, the man refused to skip to the interesting part to preserve the integrity of the tape. In the third quarter, a referee made a call that didn't sit well with Titan fans, and someone threw a beer bottle. More people started throwing things, and it escalated into a full-scale riot, in which spectators swarmed the field and attacked each other. You could see the majority of the crowd slowly evacuating the venue, while a small but determined segment began vandalizing the place and having sporadic brawls. There was no commentary at this point, just raw stadium footage that cycled through various venue cameras. About 20 minutes into the riot, the tape ended. This tape did not cause me to experience abject terror like the last one. In fact, the riot hadn't even been that bad compared to the other sport riots I'd seen. But I found it disturbing on a deeper level. The fact that they could alter a recording of a sports event to make it show something that so blatantly didn't happen in reality terrified me. They could only have done it in one of two ways with editing techniques that were well beyond what was publicly known to the world. Or with some type of magic. I still asked to see the next item. The man said it was the last one. It was a plug-and-play video game this time. The man explained that the Lost Media Group was known to dabble in other mediums besides movies and television, and that in particular, they were said to produce a lot of lost video games, though this was the only one he had been able to acquire. The game was labelled Pokemon Black Carbonite. I actually remembered hearing about Nintendo making a Pokemon plug-and-play game that was cancelled, but I didn't know if that was the title. The thing was black and bore a white image of Pikachu, sporting a menacing grin. I'm not going to let you play this. I myself will never play it again. This thing will mess you up, and it's downright dangerous. You can examine the hardware, though. I took it from him and did so. The first thing I noticed upon closer inspection was a fissure in the control pad. A lot of force had been applied to make the crack. Then I noticed that some of the plastic was warped, melted. I looked at the man. He gave me a look back, a look of understanding that there was nothing more that needed to be said. I handed the game back to him. The man said some goodbye formalities, put his hand over my shoulder, 
and aggressively led me to the door, closing and locking it behind me. He never saw my camera. During the lion short, I had managed to snap a quick digital photo of the TV screen while the man wasn't looking, and had put the camera back away before the whole bad acid trip thing. I had the photo enlarged and enhanced and studied it. It was still frightening even without the psychedelic properties of the animated short. Again, despite being a cartoon, it had such detail and realism that it seemed more alive than I thought a cartoon could. I did some research on art and animation styles, and learned that this technique was known as hyperrealism, a style intended to give intense, lifelike detail using traditional, non-digital art methods. Some pieces of this genre were almost indistinguishable from photographs. The line wasn't quite that realistic. You could still tell easily enough that it was a cartoon, yet it was somehow as visually striking as a real photo of a lion. I continued my research, now focusing on finding people who were knowledgeable about this art form. I narrowed my search down to a few academics and animators, and emailed them the lion still. I got a response from one expert saying the star reminded him of Johann Strobel, an Austrian artist and animator who had moved to the United States in the 1930s. He had worked for Disney briefly before starting his own animation studio. He was known for his bizarre deconstructionist approach to animation, and had started his own small anti-art movement of sorts. Animators and cartoonists trained at his studios produced their own bizarre works, which often included violent and grotesque scenes. Despite the fact that the studio ostensibly marketed to children, the email went on to explain that Strobel became increasingly obsessed with magic and the occult during his career. He became less and less functional until his studio was forced to close due to bankruptcy. Curiously, the studio was known to produce only a handful of original works of its own. Apparently, the animators had spent a lot of time deconstructing and replicating the works of other companies, mainly Disney since they were the only major animation studio at the time, and altering them to make them surreal or disturbing. This would have opened the company up to privacy claims, except that they never sold such works to the public, instead gifting them to a handful of collectors within the anti-art elite community. Strobel had also self-published a book, a manual of sorts which contained prints of some of his still cartoons and instructions on his technique. It was simply titled, Animation Deconstructed. I was immediately determined to read it, but it took me ages to find a copy. I managed to track one down at a public library headquarters three states away. The book was in their special archive collection, so I couldn't get it through interlibrary loan. I had to drive there, where they would allow me to examine it in their archive reading room. The room was sparse, dusty and poorly lit. It had the feel of a 1950s police interrogation room. I was allowed to read the book of interest at this single table under the supervision of a librarian. It was yellowed, and the jacket was wrapped in protective plastic. The volume was short enough to read in an hour. Strobel was not as good at English as he was at drawing, so the self-published aspect really showed in the numerous grammar errors. There were a couple dozen prints in the book, all made in his unique hyper-realistic style. Again, they were photorealistic like other artists in the genre, but had a depth of detail and perspective that made them appear alive all the same. None of them did anything paranormal or anything like that. But there was one that managed to seriously frighten me. It was a cartoon snake, a cobra, with its fangs bared 
and a menacing look in its eyes. You know how some paintings of people have the eyes painted in such a way as to give the impression of the subject's gaze following you as you view it from different angles? Well, this piece didn't do that. But it had some similar thing going on with the eyes of the snake appeared to bore right into you straight through the page. I felt like the snake was going to strike up and dig its fangs into my arm. I didn't have a trippy experience like with the line animation, but it was still surreal and unnerving. In addition to sanctions on art technique, Strobel had also included a number of seemingly randomly placed critiques of the state of animation that could generously be described as educated rants. A frequent target of his criticisms was Walt Disney, whom he decreed as an amateur buffoon who was holding back the animation medium from its true potential. The author went on to emphasize the need to be bold and daring in animation, and willing to push social taboos. I returned the volume to the librarian. I hadn't discovered anything that would help me with my search for the Aristocats tape, but at least I had come away with some interesting insights into the philosophy of the man who may have been behind it all. My next step was to visit Strobel's studio, which involved yet another cross-country road trip. I started to wonder how much gas money I would have ended up spending by the end of my search for that damned video. Was it really cheaper than flying? At least the studio was still standing, though I had arrived anticipating that everything of major interest would have been looted decades ago. Still, I held out hope as I pulled into a shopping center parking lot. The rest of my journey would have to be on foot since the studio had predated modern roads. I crossed the interstate, there being only light traffic, and found and followed the old dirt road that would have been the sole source of vehicle traffic back then. By now, it was largely overgrown, and I cursed myself for not bringing a machete. It took me two hours to reach the location. It was a one-story wooden building with its windows boarded up and foliage growing all around it. I walked the perimeter, looking for a way in that wouldn't open me up to charges of breaking and entering, though I seriously doubted anyone would ever know or care I had been here in any case. To my disappointment, no entryway had been left by previous urban explorers, and I had to hack away the boards of one window with a hatchet I had brought. It may have been easier to smash down the door, but that felt somewhat less ethical. There was of course no source of light, except the now open windowway. But I had had the foresight to bring three high-powered LED lamps in my backpack, which I now set up around the floor relieved that I did not see any scurrying or slithering. The place seemed smaller on the inside, barely spacious than my basement at home. There was no furniture except a couple broken easels on the floor. They probably sold off the tables and desks to pay off their debts, I thought. Some scuff marks were visible on the wooden floor. There was a low wooden partition that sanctioned off a small segment of the room. I guessed that this was where the administrative desk had been while the rest of the floor was used for the actual animation work. Like I said, I hadn't really been expecting to find anything important, but it was still disappointing. I spent the next couple of hours pacing the floor, wondering if the whole trip had been a waste of time and mileage. I was about to pack up my lamps and leave, when I discovered a trapdoor behind the floor partition. I had taken one of the lamps off the floor to perch it on top of the partition, and the light now allowed me to see outlines of the trapdoor, along with its hinges and latch. The door was about three feet by two feet. I grew excited and opened it. Annoyingly, the door did not appear to have a mechanism for staying open, and was far too heavy for me to hold up. I had to back out through the window and back several times just to bring some rocks to prop it up. But the content of the compartment were worth it. The compartment was about three feet deep, 
and contained what looked like diagrams for animation or film devices, along with various little parts, knobs, bolts, lenses, and the like, all scattered at the bottom. I studied these with fascination, but couldn't make heads or tails of the schematics. I tried fitting some of the parts together with no success. I decided against taking these items with me. I had rationalized that violating the law by entering this place unlawfully was worth pulling back the curtain on whatever had caused my childhood trauma. But these items were unlikely to be of value to that end, and thus stealing them for my own curiosity would go beyond the bounds of that justification. However, I did photograph each one of them just in case. The next few months were uneventful. I felt like I hit a dead end. I took a break from the mission and focused on life obligations. I had just managed to comfortably put the lost episode search on the back burner and feel contented when I received an email with the subject, What, what you've been, been looking, looking for. I hesitated a good few minutes before opening the message. Hello, if you want answers, meet me at this address and time. My heart raced. This email wasn't from any of the addresses I had messaged. I instinctively felt I was about to finally get closure, and was suddenly terrified. Perhaps even more terrified than I had been at any point before in this journey. More than when I was run off the road. More than when I was hypnotized by a cartoon lion. More than when I had been threatened through the TV in a motel room. My hands were shaking so much I could hardly use the keyboard to a new tab and look up the address. It was an empty lot from an abandoned building that had been razed years ago. The Google Map Street view looked somewhat foreboding, but it was within comfortable driving distance of my apartment, which terrified me even more to realize the sender knew what city I lived in. Still, I asked off work for the specified date, and was racked with dread until it arrived, barely able to concentrate on my job, and drove to the lot three hours ahead of time, parking my car in the street as was typical for the neighborhood. It was a sunny spring day, and the wind made me uncomfortable despite the warm weather. Each passing car made me apprehensive, particularly the ones that appeared to slow down. I had an overwhelming urge to drive away as the appointed time drew near. When the car stopped at the lot exactly at the time, I was surprised to see a woman get out. She had cropped red hair and appeared to be in her early 40s. She was wearing a black leather jacket and walked right up to me. She smiled slightly. Hi, you can call me Kathy. I am from the group you've been looking for. I swallowed and rendered a quiet greeting. She didn't look threatening. I had trouble imagining what could have possessed her to join an organization like the Lost Media Group, but right now, I had other things to be concerned with. Don't worry, this isn't a setup, she reassured, reading my apprehension. If we wanted to do you in, we could have and would have done it already. So then what do you want? I interjected. We want you to stop looking into us. She stated plainly, and to that end, I managed to convince the higher-ups to let me show you what you've been looking for so that you and we can put this behind us. You mean the Aristocats video? I asked. She nodded. For security reasons, we obviously can't just give it to you. The best I could arrange was for you to be allowed to see it. Under supervision, at one of the abandoned movie theaters we used to give private viewings of our works for select patrons. We're about to leave that location anyway, and needless to say, you shouldn't even think about telling people we were ever there. I nodded and grunted. If it meant finally getting answers, I was willing to put up with a little more bullshit. I hope you have the whole day free, because the theatre is several hours away. 
I nodded again, suspecting that she already knew the answer. We got in her car and were off. We drove in silence for the first hour or so. Then I asked her why the group made lost episodes. She waited a few moments before answering. Well, I guess you could say we aimed to challenge the status quo of programming and give animators a chance to really test their limits. That's why I joined when the organization invited me. And why do you leak them to the public if you want to keep them secret? I prodded. We don't leak them. Sometimes they just get out and people who weren't intended to see them do. I don't know how you ended up seeing one of our works as a kid, but it wasn't supposed to be. And what about the Kabatagama broadcast? Some members of our organization was messing around when he wasn't supposed to. Or maybe it was a TV broadcast only intended to be seen by members back when we were a little more lax about security. Look, I said we'd show you what you've been looking for. Beyond that, I'm afraid I'm not at liberty to satisfy your curiosity about our inner workings. I was silent for a few more minutes. Her answers were suspect. The lost media group seemed like the type of group that would find pleasure in shocking and traumatizing random people with their twisted works. And I didn't quite buy that all exposure to non-insiders was unintentional. I thought back to the FBI report. I also wondered if she was completely happy with the choice she had made to join the organization. Well, I've already seen part of your Aristocats edit recently, I finally said. Kathy pursed her lips, and I could see in her eyes that she was briefly considering whether it was worth trying to pretend she didn't know what I was talking about. She decided against it. Yeah, sorry about that, I guess. But I guess they figured if we give you a good scare, you might give up and leave us alone. I was annoyed at her choice of words, as if they were the ones who only wanted to be left at peace all the time. I could only wonder if it hadn't been her idea. I also wondered if she knew I'd seen several of their other projects as well. When you visited Strobel's old studio, that was when we decided it was time to make a peace offering to get you off our back. The theatre appeared to be one of those many theatres that had been opened during the 19s blockbuster boom and then abandoned during the 2000s. It was along the interstate, isolated from any other building. We entered through a side door Kathy had a key for. The lobby was unlit except for the sun outside. I could see a ticket counter, a concessions area, and posters for old blockbusters on the wall. Covering the floor was carpeting of a faded color pattern. Adjacent to the small food court was an empty room that I guess used to be the video arcade. Kathy told me to give her my phone, which I did. She then escorted me down the gallery hallway to the very last gallery. She asked me if I was sure I wanted to see this. I answered yes, and she said I could sit anywhere I wanted. I chose a seat near the back, while she went up to run the projector. I began feeling scared. Sitting there in the dark, abandoned gallery was very reminiscent of sitting in the dark watching the Aristocats all those years ago, except all that extra space made it even more ominous. When the feature started, I could tell immediately that the audio was off. It sounded shrieky and low quality. Otherwise, the movie was normal up until the point when the old woman decided to get rid of the cats. Instead of drugging them and leaving them abandoned like in a normal movie, she drowned them in the river. It went downhill from there. Suddenly, I was a five-year-old boy again, watching in horror as characters were mutilated, decapitated, and burned, all while strange audio and visual effects were applied. One particularly shocking scene featured real footage of cats attacking and killing a man. In real time, lines were drawn over the scene, covering it in sketchwork until it had become a completely animated version of itself. 
it was done with such absolute perfection of technique that I was sure Strobel must have done that bit himself. I eventually got a grip and was able to sit through the rest of the thing calmly. It wasn't pleasant, but I was at least relieved to finally be getting it over with. When it was over, I think I had tears in my eyes. Kathy drove me back to the empty lot, and it was dark by the time we arrived. Before I got out, she spoke to me one last time. Now listen to me. You have found what you were looking for, and now that you have, you need to let it go. I took a big risk even pushing to let you in behind the scenes for that brief moment. If you continue pursuing information about our organization, we will have to take more drastic measures. We exchanged goodbyes. For years, I kept my end of the agreement, to never speak a word about our encounter to anyone. However, recently I've been reconsidering the bargain. A few days ago, someone reached out to me on the web, asking me for information on lost episodes. They claim to have seen one as a child, and are hoping to find closure for their experience. I'm debating with myself whether it's worth letting them in on the secret, or if it would be better for their own sake. If I convinced them, they imagined the whole thing. This concludes Lost Episodes Can Be Found Again by Hopeless Night Owl. Well, listeners, be careful what you ask for, right? What else could Kathy and the Lost Media Group be hiding? There must be a wealth of videos that they have tucked away and periodically released to corrupt people's minds. And it seems that there is a pattern with showing these videos to people at young ages and having it fester over the years. I think it would be interesting if our protagonist does pursue the case to finally get to the bottom of it all. Nothing beats a good mystery, and Hopeless Night Owl does a great job. Folks, I'm sitting here with an Earl Grey after a very, very busy day and loving it. I was asked today about how my day was. Seeing as it started at 6 in the morning and finished at 5, it's been hectic, was my answer. I just wanted to say, thank you for listening, mates, and that this podcast is my way of relaxing every two days. So thank you all so very much. Have a fantastic weekend. A high five to my Earl Grey Enforcers. And as always, till next we meet.